uh, I guess in this conversation I wanted to ask more overall questions about what do you take from this experience mm -hmm. and also it, it has a whole new approach with the recording and how does the meaning then change? Those are good questions. Uh, I think if I answer your, your second question first, making an opera recording, you know, we did it this way out of necessity. Uh, we had a limited amount of time and the resources we had, but I think artistically, it ended up allowing us to do things that, uh, if you think of recording in an opera hall, you have the space, the sonic space that you do, and then an audio engineer usually works after that, adjusting the reverb, but I, I actually think that, um, I don't know how people will feel about this, but I know how I feel about it. I really like it. The ability to go in and kind of, just like the lighting created in the production, the lighting made really different kind of environment for this sort of dream courtroom and, and the real courtroom. And, and we used, I guess, I think, some of the sound engineering a little bit like that lighting. So that there, there's kind of a little different signature for the different settings. Mm -hmm. When you're recording uh, in a studio, you know, everything you have, I think we have 32 different microphones. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it gives you a flexibility um, that, that you don't have when you're recording in a big space with a lot of uh, mic microphones placed around the space. I imagine that it was really difficult to pick the right uh, material for the recording when having all these possibilities. Yes, uh, that what we actually did was in the recording session, the recording engineer and I were taking notes. So I had a pretty good idea which takes we wanted to use or several takes. And then we went back and we listened and, uh, and made those decisions. But the rough cut took a long time. Uh, and then once we had the rough cut, then we were, then we were mixing from all these different microphones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is it more pressure to put on yourself to make a recording that it will be forever and uh, you cannot alter? Do you feel like this pressure and to make it uh, something perfect or better? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you want it in everything that I do with music, you know, you, you want to do your best. And I know we did our best. Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't be more pleased with the vocal performances. I noticed that these are young singers and some of them, their voices had grown yeah. in, in the year between. So, so that for me was the most important part is can this recording really do justice to their voices and their performances? And I think it does. So that from that, from that, standpoint i'm very pleased mm -hmm. but i think you know if if the piece is as you know hopefully it gets recorded again and then i don't have to do it myself <laughs> yeah i think recording yourself and especially mixing myself i'm i'm really glad that my colleague and friend per egland he came to it with new ears he'd never heard the piece before and then once we had been mixing for a long time we had our friend a singer friend come in and lie on the floor of our little studio because we had no space in this <laughs> tiny little uh, place we were working and he listened and shared his feedback so this process of always getting fresh ears in was really important was it additional challenge to create a dramatic piece with uh, as you mentioned there are different spaces and different characters of people and and to make it only audio 
what was challenging in this period? Well, I mean, you're wondering if it's going to even work. Uh, you just don't know because I remember talking to some, you know, recording companies, Innova in Minnesota, that releases only new music, and they, they loved the piece, but they said, you know, you could make a video out of this, but I don't know if this is a, you know, an album releasing an opera like that. But I knew it could work. And I think it's just wondering if that sort of dramatic thrust, if the dramaturgy translates to audio only. And I think it does. I think uh, that really comes down to the singer's performances in combination with getting a shape in, in the recording. Just the right flow. I think something we spent a lot of time with was I wanted the exact right amount of time mm -hmm. between different transitions. Yeah. You know, Para is zooming in and, and we're cutting out, you know, a quarter of a second or a tenth of a second just to, just to get it just mm -hmm. right. And so I think it makes a difference. Yeah. So that dramaturgy becomes more like a rhythm. It comes down to the rhythm of the recording. Well, I've, I'm obsessed with, in all of my music, this sort of idea of pacing, which is sort of the dramatic pacing of a piece or the musical pacing. I think of music in terms of energy. And so if you have energy, what can it do? Well, it can increase or it can dissipate. Yeah. It can be, you know, coming on and off. And Our Deer is such a kinetic piece, you know, with all the driving rhythms all of a sudden kind of unfolding in something atmospheric. And uh, so... I think that's something that the recording captures, yeah, is that sort of sense of physical energy being pulled along mm -hmm. on this journey. And uh, you mentioned that you wanted to have some fresh ears to, to make this new, different perspective and, and with different ideas. So how was it for you? Did you manage to see this opera, something new in it? When the rough cut took so long to reach us from Minneapolis, there... I was really frustrated at that point. And so I didn't listen to anything until we were mastering or mixing, until we were mixing. And as a result, I hadn't really uh, listened to the piece or looked at the score, thought about it since we had recorded. Mm. So, so at that point, I was able to hear it. So that, that was helpful, but it made a big difference having somebody new come in because with anything is the more that you get, whether you're composing a piece of music or making a recording, kind of the more you get exposed to it, the less clearly you can see it yourself. What difference does this recording brings to the audience and to the listener? Was there an expectation to create a new experience? If we look at American opera and new American operas, I think I was aware that Voir Dear was a little different. I was comfortable having a different kind of recording. I was comfortable doing sound design the way that a band would do it. Um, per Eglon comes out of the Swedish like indie rock world. Mm. So he was bringing that sensibility to this. And he said, well, I tried this on this instrumental interlude. What do you think? Uh, and I loved it. And so in some tracks, it's something we did with the double bass sound, pizzicato double bass. And another track, it's something we did with the reverb to, bring the, to really bring the vocal harmonies out. I'm proud of that. I w I'm, I'm curious to see if there's a reaction to it and if that reaction's, you know, positive or provoked yeah. or what, that, that, we, that we made a re an opera recording with a little bit of those sensibilities. And what was your role as a composer in making a recording of your piece? 
Well, I sat in the booth. Our conductor, Vishwa Subaraman, was really in charge of the recording session in terms of the ensemble and the singers. And then, of course, I'm talking to him through this microphone in the studio, which is fun, making sure it's off when I'm saying horrible things about one of the players. But I produced everything. I, I raised the money. I had some help, but I, I did most of the, the fundraising, crowdfunding. Booked everything, booked the flights, uh, Airbnb, and and then and then Per and I were mixing. And Per is uh, he's a little better with technology than me, so he was handling the digital audio workshop, and I was just saying we should do this, we should, you know. So I've I've had a lot of different hats on in this process. Yeah, was there something really unexpected or challenging in, in this? How did you imagine your process and? because there's a lot of new tasks, organizational and... It, it was really, really challenging. Uh, my daughter had been born in January, 2018. And then for all of the late winter and spring, you know, three months, I was trying to raise this money and, and everyone in the US is six, seven hours behind me. So, so I was making phone calls, Vishwa, you know, in the evening. So it was like I was working all day as a composer and then the evening I was working as this uh, fundraiser slash uh, recording producer. Yeah. So I, I, I burnt out after the recording, I crashed really hard. Mm. Um, I, I, just, I just put everything I had into doing all this work, but I'm glad that we did it. I, I know that if, if we hadn't done it then, I don't know if it ever, if it ever would have been done. And that's the world that we live in that it's so different now. In some ways, making a recording is it's so much easier than before. But there, it's also, uh, and if, if something isn't recorded, it doesn't exist mm, nowadays. I see. But yeah, you have to be able to find it. It's got to be on Spotify and Apple Music and YouTube and, mm. you know, and all these things. Mm -hmm. um, which is, it, it's an aspect, I don't enjoy that, it, but it, it's necessary. So, you know, you have to do all these things things but yeah but the piece I, I believe in the piece and I'm really happy we could do it with these singers yeah to have to record music in order for it to exist <laughs> how would you say it, it it differs for today's listener to have uh, this experience of opera in a digital way we're living in in the pandemic time all of a sudden People are experiencing music in new ways. You have live streaming. Yeah. Um, I, I have friends and musicians in all types of music that are, that are trying to find ways to, well, to make money doing that because their income from live performances is gone. So I, I think we're living in a paradigm shift and I don't know exactly what it means for music. I think it can be, it can go either way. Um, so I think that we're at a time that I think people are very open to listening to an opera as a recording. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, but I think that we're also in a time where video, good video of opera will be even more important. It's been about 15 years that the Met, for example, has been simulcasting performances. And there, there are positives and negatives to that. You know, does something like that keep people from supporting their, their local arts? But at the same time, you know, I, I would have seen an opera before I was uh, 20 years old, if, if that had existed in my childhood, you know. Things are more accessible than ever for people who are curious and want to find it. And, and Voir Dear now is going to be one of those things that people can find anywhere in the world. Mm. Yeah.
would you say that it can change even the meaning of the opera genre? I think a lot about what opera is. I am in love with the possibilities of the art form. I, I would lie if I said that there are lots and lots of operas that I feel very strongly about, really. But when an opera, when it works, it is magical for me. And so that's, that's what I'm aiming for. Whether we call it opera, whether the singers are singing with a certain technique, I don't know, but I, I think it's the type of an art form that's going to exist in some form, you know, as long as we are making music in this way. So, so yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of really good operas being written right now. I think it's sort of a golden age for opera. Glad Vordier has, has been a part of this time. And uh, I talk about wishing sometimes that it had been performed earlier after it was written, you know. But uh, I also know that the rewrites we made in 2016 really improved the piece. So it was sort of this balance, like, well, it's a fun thought experiment. Would I rather that the piece had been performed in the form that it was back then? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But uh, looking back, recording this has made me see, doing the rewrites 10, 11 years ago, I was doing stuff that I'm really proud of, and I never got to hear it until 2017. You know, that's a long time to go without being able to kind of fully evaluate something that you've done. You know, and as a result, I mean, self-consciously, I kind of went away from some of the things that I'd done because you just, you just don't know. And I want to do these other things in music. Yeah. So it's a fun thought experiment. But I think back to the actual question, will it change how people think about opera? I think absolutely. I think there are people that will listen to this recording that have supported this, maybe have been to a couple operas or supported just because they know me or they, they know my music. And I really hope those people get excited about this recording. Did this uh, opera and the experience of recording it influence you as a composer and made an impact of how do you now see your, your work and understand your work? I think both musically and sort of in, in the work that I do, uh, what you, I guess you could call my career. I, musically, I think I'm ready to start going back to more of that nasty, chromatic voir dire sound. You know, all my, a lot of my music since I wrote voir dire has been modal and clean and I think beautiful. And there's been, there's been other kinds of music too, but that harmonic world, I, I could see myself going back to especially when I'm working with, you know, really economically with these four notes, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I think anytime you're listening to how sound technology can create different kinds of sounds that, you know, we're adjusting the distortion or the reverb just ever so slightly. Mm -hmm. And you think about, well, I, you know, instruments can do that too. It makes a person a lot better at, I think, musical notation. It's not like a surprise to me when I think about the pieces that Ligeti made in the, in the 60s, once they've been working with all the, uh, you know, electronic music. I understand exactly how that happened for them, although my music's very different. And then uh, in terms of my career, I mean, I'm making more recordings now. We're recording at the end of August. We're going to record my sax quartet dance party playlist with Stockholm sax quartet. We're recording Smooth, Fat, Nasty, the baritone sax solo. So we're going to have this whole album of saxophone music nice. that we release uh, probably early next year. So I think we'll be making recordings, not only of my music, but new music, probably one every year now for the, okay. for the next few years. Because you know how, we know how to do it. I know how to do it now. It's fun. Yeah. Do you have any opera projects or concepts in mind? 
I think a lot about what I would want to do for my next project. I have a couple of librettists I've worked with. Uh, Jason would probably do something again with me. Um, and we've talked about things we want to do. Uh, I have a couple other librettists that I've met and we have a project that we would want to do together. And then I have, yeah, I always have, I have some librettos. I think you keep those close to your vest. I just want to wait and see. I think it's, it so much depends on who it is that wants to make an opera together and what do they want to do. It really is such a big teamwork that uh, you would want to pick the right project for the right people. But yeah, I would like to, I'd like to get back to opera. I'm really hoping that this Vardir recording can help get things moving for my next opera, my fourth opera. And you mentioned that opera is a really collaborative genre. Um, what do you value the most in the collaboration while uh, composing an opera? Working with a librettist brings out a different side. It's like shining light through a prism, right? And you get different colors. You have this new prism that music shines through. And uh, working with a librettist, the way that their text, you know, inspires that different music. When I composed with Jason, things happened in my music that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So I'd be really curious to work with a new librettist and see yeah. what happens. I want to write a full-length opera. I'd love to work with, a, uh, with an orchestra, a full orchestra. That's a strength of mine, I think, is writing for orchestra and sort of combine that with opera. I've only written chamber operas with ensembles of seven to 15 musicians. Mm -hmm. So that would probably be what I value the most. And, and also... Composing music came naturally to me because as a child, and even as an adult, I kind of can imagine different worlds. You know, you have, a, you have an active fantasy, and opera allows that to happen on several levels. You have the musical level and the setting and the characters. So there, there just is so much depth, I think so much more than a purely musical work. Um, although music in itself is compelling, sound is compelling, mm -hmm. but having these different levels, uh, I love that. I, I really do. You asked a question earlier, will this change the way that people think about opera? And I know it did. Uh, it had such a strong reaction from people at the performance and they were mostly, you know, really positive or people were really moved or this sort of thing. But there was also this guy, this older gentleman, mm -hmm that I, I think I referred to, he was bothered. He thought that the piece was, you know, not inspiring. And I just remember he named the, the other piece on the festival's Carmen. It's like, why can't it have like an inspiring message like Carmen? <laughs> and I remember thinking like, you have no idea what Carmen is, do you? Yeah. You yeah. just for the beautiful singing and the beautiful music. But this, this is a twisted, twisted piece. Yeah. Carmen messed up. Vardir is much more inspiring. Carmen is fundamentally pessimistic. It's all about gender roles and toxic masculinity and manipulation and the inability to be genuine with another human being yeah. and freedom contra obligation. And can you have love without obligation? You're ultimately helpless. This piece has had so much controversy. The general director, Darren Woods, was about to be fired. He'd been there 15 years. He turned Fort Worth Opera from like a, a provincial opera company into one of the United States leading yeah. uh, new opera companies, right? And uh, he was about to be fired uh, for reasons that had nothing to do with my piece. But I remember I was back in, in North Dakota and uh, I'm getting these emails. 
there was a worker for them. She'd seen the Professor Milton, the child pornography, which is exactly based on one character. And this person had seen the whole opera rehearsed and objected very strongly. She says, well, this opera written by two white men, which I'm kind of like, oh shit, I read that. Well, it was pointed out because of the amount of violence towards women that is described. And it was like, well, that's the way it is. Do you want us to lie? Well, Darren was so worried at this point, the general director, he said, well, why don't we change the images to boys? Uh, David Gately, the director, is a gay man. And I was talking to David. I said, how do you feel about this? Because there's this sort of pernicious stereotype that, that gay men are pedophiles, right? And, and, and he said, well, sure, you know, there's the stereotype, but there's also, you know, this could happen too. I think those are just examples of how much pressure we've had at different points in time, yeah. you know, with this piece. And then um, I don't think, and this is something I thought about even when I was young and dumb at 24, you know, I didn't think about these things. I just thought, well, this is the truth, you know, mm-hmm. we're being honest. But you're, th- you're making sure that you're never glorifying this violence. Yeah. And it's so interesting, the double standard. Some people, there's still this idea that opera is this precious thing, which totally runs in the face of what opera is. Yeah. You know, Don Giovanni is a rapist. We catch him at the beginning. That's why I love the Peter Sellers uh, staging of Don Giovanni, because he gets to the heart of like, what this piece actually is about this nobleman who goes around at the very best date raping women you know it's that's what it is i find that really interesting this sort of conflict between socially and culturally what opera has been and been portrayed as and what the actual reality is it's very paradoxical that you create this opera and the theme of morality and, and justice and truth, and you have to create this rewrites for to change the truth. And Yeah, isn't that interesting? This is maybe one of the most important things that conflicts in terms of getting the piece on stage and why I think it's so important to record it. You're writing for these like superhumans of the singing world, like the Olympic athletes of song, right? And they have these voices that can do things that other voices can't. And they've been trained to do a certain type of singing. But at a certain point, opera and in the enjoyment of opera for many people, and I feel that a lot of people in the opera institutions are this way, that the focus becomes completely on the singing. Mm-hmm. And that's why these pieces that are fundamentally violent we think of is so beautiful. Well, they are. The music is beautiful. I mean, Don Giovanni's got some really beautiful music, right? But the Ponte's uh, libretto, which Mozart absolutely understands what's going on, and it's there in the music, it, sometimes that's at odds with the artwork. And so I think about the future of opera. Like, is it about the pieces or the singing? Can it be about both? Can my operas be the type of pieces I want to make with that singing style. You know, Voir as you said, it's percussive. It very rarely opens up these operatic voices, right? Which is partly just the way Jason's language is. I, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> but I allowed it to be what it is. And the singers, I'm so thankful, they allowed it to be what it is. And they took it seriously and they worked hard on it. In the end, it's a different kind of opera. And I think, you know, it, it needs those voices also, but in a different way. 
And I think maybe this is part of the reason that you end up with auteur kind of direction where you have, you know, Das Rheingold set in, um, I don't know, a boardroom. Silly example, but, but maybe it's because, you know, we need something else interesting to look at. We have the singing we want to listen to, and then we want to have something exciting to look at. And I think it ends up being this sort of schizophrenic art form at that point. But I mean, what are you going to do when you've seen Rheingold 50 times? You know, you got to do something weird with it. So when in the end, you know, my job is to write maybe 10 operas or if I'm lucky. And, and that's that. So we'll see. And you mentioned that there were a lot of different reactions to the opera and, and to the staging and the themes that it covers. Uh, was there any interesting reactions to the recording already? I don't think enough people have listened to it yet. You know, when people saw the opera, the criticism was overwhelmingly positive, and that doesn't really mean anything in the end, other than they had an exciting experience or that they want to support new opera, both of which I think are good reasons to write a good uh, review. But, but I'm really interested to see if now, several years later, people who were not at the performance decide to write about the recording. I'd be really interested. And I'm prepared, you know, for people to have issues with the music. That's fine. You know, seeing if it works, seeing if they understand, you know, that they have a reaction to the subject matter. Jason said that in his liner notes, he wrote something that I thought was really beautiful. Jason and I had a fight about the, if we should title it Vardir. He thought it was presumptuous. He thought, oh, we shouldn't call it Vardir because the literal original meaning of Vardir is to speak the truth. And who are we to think that we have a monopoly on the truth? And I thought, Jason, the piece has been called Vardir for five years. <laughs> we can't just change it now. Yeah. But also there, and I said, you know, the, the Vardir is a trial within a trial. And he said uh, in the liner notes that a trial within a trial to determine is this jury worthy of hearing and seeing this case and ultimately, you know, deciding. Yeah. He said that the voir dire was ultimately ours, that in writing an opera like this, that's based on, you know, real pain, real people that are combined. We didn't want to make anyone's life into a character. That would, that would be, we wanted to kind of capture some of the truth of that and we combine it with someone else and we end up with a, with a new person. But he said the voir dire was ultimately ours if whether Jason and I were fit to write this opera mm -hmm. and that he hopes we passed. And so I kind of hope that with this recording, the staged version passed you know, uh, in terms of that serving the vision of the piece. And, and I hope that this recording passes. That's good to hear. You just have to do it. You, yeah. you don't get anyone saying like, okay, you know, this is good. You get an A. You pass. <laughs> you know, you did when you're in school, but you learned that you just have to do it. You know, you, you don't ask for anyone's permission. No one's going to tell you if it's good enough or not. You just have to do it. So thank you very much. It was really nice to meet you and to talk to you. And nice to meet you, Anna. Thanks, and we'll, we'll be in touch. Yeah, thank you very much.